So, Father Dave, are you feeling wholly ordered? No. <laughs> my, my desk is in a state of probably wholly disorder at the moment. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Sons of Thunder, the podcast where we make a lot of noise whilst pursuing the light. Welcome to today's episode. Mind you, it's probably not the best uh, analogy because in First Kings, we read that God is not in the storm, but it does suit the fact that we are sons of thunder. That works, at least. A little. Yeah, a bit. How are you guys? Good. Good. I, um, I busted my fermenter last night. I was trying to... I've got this five-litre bottle that I've, I've been brewing um, lemon ale in, and I was disinfecting it with boiling water, and it cracked, which really frustrated me. But it's okay. I've rectified the situation. I've found a plastic one, and, um, and it's brewing. So you're doing okay? Do you need yeah. me to stop recording and have a bit of a chat to Father Dave? <laughs> I've never done pastoral care for someone grieving over a fermenter before. <laughs> <laughs> so much like we often get it wrong regarding God. So I use an analogy at the start of we make a lot of noise and pursuing the light and sons of thunder and thunder and lightning. And anytime we ever had to do very, God very in a play... Yeah, Galileo. Galileo. <laughs> Anytime we have they had to do play God in a play or anything like that, of course, the voice. Marty, give us your best God voice from a primary school play. Um, I'm thinking of Zeus. Yes. Noah. <laughs> Noah. Build me an ark. As opposed to a voice that's really loving and gentle and soft in silence. We almost set up this straw man again and again of, of who God is. And I feel like we've mm. done the same thing with holy orders today's episode. We expect priests to have big, booming voices. What do we expect priests to be? What are they? Mm. Can we start with this? Because, Father Dave, I know your journey has had its... Uh, ordinations. Its and ordinations <laughs> and lots of decisions and lots of contemplation. Could we start with a, a little bit of a, a personal journey through the, uh, the vocation of Father Dave? Oh, okay. Yeah, let me just uh, wander back into distant memories. So basically, I uh, I never had an intention to be a priest. The sort of classic priest testimony is where they always wanted to be a priest from about five years old, but that and they were celebrating me. mass in the lounge room with their little kids' mass kit. Yeah, that's right. No, it definitely wasn't me. What were you doing at age five? <laughs> I was pretty much pursuing just your average life and career all the way through high school and then university, God kind of broke into my life halfway through my first year of uni. And I suddenly realized that I didn't really want to live that normal life that I was pursuing. There was too much of a pause there. And I realized I didn't want to live <laughs> that normal life. Yeah, sorry, that was just me just getting lost back in distant <laughs> memories. But in, in a strange way, it was... I, I could get, kind of get all spiritual and philosophical here because there is something in religious life about almost actively pursuing death. Like, like you're, you're not pursuing earthly life. You're, you're pursuing eternal mm. life. Um, so mm. maybe that was the, the cause of my pause. <laughs> it was the fact that, yeah, that there's something in me was just like, I'm not interested in this anymore. I've kind of done all the stuff that I, I was pursuing and I'm looking for more. Now, originally I was just looking to be a brother. I think I've mentioned this before that I, um, I, I, I had no desire to be a priest. It had just never... Do you remember at your ordination the first words that were spoken to you in the homily by the Archbishop? Because I do. Oh, I remember the homily from uh, the diaconate, but I don't remember much of the priesthood ordination. I had just, I'd just come back from the walk. 
you were already a deacon, yep. and I was able to make it to Canberra for your ordination to priesthood. And the archbishop turned to you. You were who were you ordained alongside? Someone was ordained to the diaconate. Dan Strickland. Oh, it was too. Yeah. You and Father Dan were almost preening each other. I can't remember. There was something about your clothes, basically making sure everything was straight. And the archbishop was glaring at you, and you weren't aware of that. And so he got your attention with a very straight, oi. And you both <laughs> swung towards him, and he said, you're dead men, and I hope you know it. And then turned back to us and proceeded to give his homily. So that's all I remember. You're a dead man. There you go. I'll have to go back and find the video of that or something. But yeah, so basically, I just wanted to join the Franciscans and be a Franciscan brother. Once again, God kind of intervened and pointed me in a different direction to the MGLs. Another brown-wearing order. Well, that's right. The Missionaries of God's Love. And uh, slowly, God started to drop this idea of, hey, what about the priesthood? And my normal response was, do we have to? <laughs> but yeah, basically God sort of convinced me and I slowly went for the idea. What attracted you to being a brother in the first place? Was it the prayer and contemplation? I just wanted to love Jesus. Yeah. I really, that's all it was. I just wanted to love Jesus. I, I wanted to be just a simple guy, didn't make much of a noise in the world, just loved the Lord and prayed. Because I'm, I'm a chronic introvert and God was like, no, nope, sorry, you're going to spend the rest of your life talking. <laughs> so I think I think that was my that was my wrestling match with God and probably still is daily. And he's like, go on, go on, keep talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do your job. Yeah. So yeah, now 12 years later, well, 12 years of ordination later, I do love being a priest. Going back to your opening question of what is a priest meant to look like, I have no idea. I don't think I fit the stereotype. I don't feel like the stereotype. I occasionally catch myself thinking, oh, I'm a, I'm a priest. That's right. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, it must be strange to be on the inside. Most of us view priesthood from the outside. Mm. But it must be strange to have those moments where you suddenly realise I am a priest and particularly at the Eucharist, I can imagine, mm. or in the confessional, must really hit home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sometimes I kind of get a glimpse of the reality and I'm like, oh, that's too much to think about. I'll leave that until I'm dead. Mm. You know. <laughs> so in terms of what is a priest, a priest is a man who's had, through ordination, has had his soul changed in a way that he can do certain things that other people can't do, particularly around the sacraments. This is maybe where we need to define a bit of theology. How many priests are there, gentlemen? One. Oh, now everyone who's baptised oh, Everyone is a who's baptised. <laughs> a priest, a prophet and a king. Yeah. There's, there's technically three answers to that question. So <laughs> One, a fair few and lots and lots. <laughs> <laughs> so so technically there is only one priest that's jesus christ i don't like it when you ask questions our questions are a bit more simple i feel you're ruining the system <laughs> <laughs> so technically there is only one priest who is jesus he's the one who offers the perfect sacrifice of love to the father all of us then have a share in that priesthood to varying degrees so anyone who has been baptized is in what we would call the, the priesthood of the faithful or the, you know, the, the or sort of, uh, don't, don't want to call it the ordinary priesthood, but it's like you, you, you are set apart to offer a daily sacrifice of praise and worship and, and love to God. But then there are some who are set apart as ministerial priests. 
basically to offer the Eucharist. But even then, there is varying degrees of entry into that grace. So, so a bishop has a greater share of the priesthood of Christ than a priest does. Now, very interesting. I just want to hold up something you said there in terms of making daily sacrifice or making the sacrifice of the Mass. You can't separate the priesthood from sacrifice. Mm. Look back to the Old Testament. The whole purpose of the priests was to make the sacrifice or various sacrifices in order to worship God through sacrifice. Well, that was interesting too, as how we define worship. Worship involves sacrifice at its core. That, 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 that's a fascinating thing in that um, it's, it's a particularly Catholic or Orthodox way of seeing worship which really is quite foreign to Protestant Christians. I was reading a thing the other day about how, how Protestants think that we worship Mary as a God because they look at the way we pray to Mary and they say, well, that's worship and therefore you must think that she's God. And this Catholic convert was saying, no, our understanding of worship is radically different to yours. Mm. Like our understanding of worship always involves sacrifice mm. and we don't even go near that with Mary. Mm. Mm. Or any of the saints. Or we any of the saints. You don't make exactly. sacrifice for the saints. You yeah. make sacrifice to God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's because if, you're, if your worship only involves praying and, and singing and mm. if, you have, if there is no sacrifice in your worship, then it's a bit hard to see what the difference between prayers to the saints or to Mary is different to our prayers to God the Father. Well, that's but if right. you do yeah. understand the sacrifice, especially the sacrifice of the Mass, yeah. you see they're completely different. Yeah, that's it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so like you say, the priesthood of the faithful yeah, which everyone shares in baptism, it, it necessarily involves sacrifice. But it's it, even that, it, it's not a sacrifice separate to the Mass. It's a sacrifice united with the Mass. Mm. So we talk about this idea that when you attend the Eucharist, you become no longer just an individual, but you become part of the body of Christ. And you carry with you all the small sacrifices of your day mm. and basically unite them with the sacrifice of Christ. So the whole idea of the offertory, bringing the gifts down to the altar, you're actually also symbolically bringing your life to the altar so that your little prayers and acts of love become something so much bigger. Mm. Hence grandma's perennial advice, you know, my knee hurts, offer it up. Yeah, mm. yeah. How's your fermenter, Marty? Um, healed. <laughs> <laughs> when when yes. you first said that you'd broken your fermenter, I was like, is that a bone in the is... body somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> it's not the big one in your leg. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I was younger, and by that I mean early 20s, sitting in on a discussion that I didn't really care about, but I did walk away from it thinking that was confusing because the guy's... I was sitting with were discussing great preamble between <laughs> praise and worship. Oh. And what I remember, the conclusion was the difference between praise and worship is one's a faster song than the other. <laughs> and that was our limited understanding of praise and worship was that they're both just types of songs oh. and one has a faster beat. And there may be some truth to that, but I think there's maybe not the whole <laughs> truth. Oh, we play both types, country and Western. <laughs> so, Father Dave, entering into holy orders, you are offering your life as a sacrifice in worship of God. Mm. And in doing so, you are also... Giving up legitimate goods for the sake of an even bigger good. Yes. Nailed. And you're bringing God's love to all those you meet. 
or all those God brings to you. Yeah. You know, no pressure. And, God's healing. And, and in many respects, what you've and just healing. defined is no different to what you guys are living. Um, like, mm. like really, that's, that's meant to be the calling of every baptised Christian. Yeah. We're all meant to lay our lives down and live for the sake of bringing life to the world. Tragically, we've set that apart as being the vocation of the radical Christians. You know, if you go and be a missionary or a priest or whatever, then you have to go give your whole life. Otherwise, you only give a little bit and keep the rest to yourself. Mm. Post the rest on Instagram. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but really, if, if the average Christian is living their priesthood, you know, baptized as priest, prophet and king, it should be every part of their life is seeking to be laid down and given for the life of the world in mm. very different ways. Mm. Yeah. Within holy orders itself, what are the different ways? I suppose. So, so you're, you're about to say something? <laughs> You're about to say he was about to, He was about to answer his own question. Yeah, I was, I was waiting to see whether he had a better answer than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, in my experience. <laughs> so once again, I think the way that the priesthood is lived out is, is very different in, in many different ways. Like, so I'm living this as a consecrated man. So in a religious order, the way I live my priesthood is quite different to the way a Dawson priest would live it. We're both doing the same job, but we're probably living quite a different life in the midst of that. So, so some people would see the priesthood in terms of its function. So you minister the sacraments, you lead a body of people in worship, you know, you're trying to bring the love of Christ to those you meet. But I suppose there's particularly different ways that a person would express that within a charism of, of a religious order. So a, a priest in a monastery is going to love the world through prayer. If you think of someone in the Carthusians, you know, the Carthusians only get to speak for one hour each week. They are hardcore. They are seriously hardcore. And they break sleep. They only sleep for like three hours and get up to say midnight yeah, prayer and they, then they sleep for another three prayer, hours. Like, and Start their prayer at 2 a.m. or something. Like they, they, they're loving the world and sacrificing their lives through intercession. Whereas you'd go to a busy priest in an inner city parish and he's just going to be talking to people all day, you know, just working you know, partially caring for the poor, the sick, everything probably doesn't feel like he gets much time for prayer at all. Sometimes the, the way they describe it is each religious order emphasizes one particular part of the life of Jesus. Mm. I was just thinking that it, it's kind of beautiful that you do have, it, it's not an excuse for a diocesan priest not to pray. And it's not an excuse for a Carthusian not to um Be doing social justice work. Yeah, yeah, or, <laughs> yeah. Gi or give alms or anything like that. But it's not an individual effort. Exactly. Yeah. One of the priests we had here is a Vietnamese Dominican, Father Chin. And I remember him talking to us about exactly this question, the different orders. And he said, back you in had a Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> he probably wouldn't understand that idiom. But anyway, he, he said back in Vietnam when they were kids, they had these like open days where all the orders had come and you'd have the Dominicans and the Franciscans and the probably not Carthusians because they're closed order, but the Salesians and the, the different orders. And you could see them all. You could see what they look like with their different habits and you could hear from them more about what they did. And his explanation I thought was fantastic. He said, Jesus said, some of these things can only be healed with prayer and fasting. And that's, for example, the Carthusians. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And that's the Salesians. And Jesus said, you know, you need to understand the scriptures and preach my word. And, and that's the Dominicans. And all these different aspects of Jesus's life and teaching that these different orders pick up these different charisms mm. and look a little bit different with different colour. <laughs> Jesus said don't take any spare sandals or tunic 
and that was the MGLs. <laughs> I don't think I've even got one tunic. <laughs> what does a tunic look like? There's no arguments there, is it? Exactly. <laughs> now, we've been naming all the priestly orders, but we also have all of the, the convents, etc. Do they come under holy orders? No, no. So this is an interesting thing in terms of vocation because we, we talk about the sacrament of marriage and the sacrament of holy orders, but in terms of vocation, we would talk about consecrated life, which is not a sacrament. It's just a vow. Mm. And people would also talk about being intentionally single as being a vocation. But once again, that, that's not even a vow. It's just a decision. Fundamentally, a vocation is something where you're seeking to lay your life down for love and you're seeking to be you know, stretched in love so that you can you know, grow in holiness. So I think this is where... The sacramental side of things is really just trying to reveal something very particular about mm. the ministry of God in the world, but it's obviously not exclusive. Like, like it's not as though other nuns can't do that. Mm. It's just trying to say in, in marriage, marriage reveals the Trinity in a very particular way, and the priesthood reveals the priestly ministry of Christ in a very, very particular way. Mm. So on that note, there's three levels of ordination. That you get mm. ordained to the diaconate, and then, and then later you get ordained to the priesthood, and some priests are then ordained as a bishop. So there's sort of three levels. The minor order, the old, the old-fashioned minor orders, verger and porter and stuff, they weren't they weren't ordinations. They were just appointments or something. I'm guessing. Well, yeah. So there, I think it was seven stages you went through or something. Oh, you yeah. say verger. The, the verger was the guy who carried a stick and got people out of the way for processions and stuff. Wow. Yeah. So they, they still Wouldn't talk that be about, a cool job? <laughs> they still have the minor orders of lector and acolyte. So on the, on the journey to ordination, you, you have to become a lector and then an acolyte. I actually missed being made a lector in my first year in training because I randomly got sent to Darwin unexpectedly. And so towards the end of my seminary training, they sort of realized, oh, you've missed this. We'd better do it quickly. Yeah, so I had to get that knocked through right at the end before I got ordained a deacon. And what is that? That's related to reading. Yeah, so basically a reader at Mass, but but it's actually an right. official ceremony to oh, really? appoint wow. you. So I read at Mass. So I, I don't think I've had a ceremony, is that? Which, which technically anyone reading at Mass should be appointed oh. as a lector. Oh, yeah. I'll have to rectify that. Stop reading. <laughs> <laughs> In in some of the Eastern rites, I think I think it's during one of the minor orders they actually cut your hair. Oh, it sort of symbolised that whole idea of Saint Paul taking a vow where he shaved his head. Yeah, but they sort of symbolise it by by cutting a little bit off your fringe. So there's, so there's all sorts of little rituals in the different Catholic rites around the world. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so consecrated brothers and consecrated sisters, nuns, are not ordained. Minor orders like lectors and acolytes are not ordained. Mm. That's covered all what we're not talking about. I've got, to, I've got to admit, this is actually news to me in that I always thought that holy orders encompassed priest, brother, sister, consecrated. I just equated the two. I've, I've actually never heard. I guess there's the problem with having never studied theology. I've just never heard anyone say that, no, 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 a vocation doesn't equal holy holy orders. Mm. And and you're probably not alone because um, often when we would have guys celebrate their vows, the number of people who would come up and say, congratulations on your ordination. And we're like, you've got no idea what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> as long so, as yeah, it's not, not one of your own brothers saying that <laughs> so i just want to do our nuts and bolts bit in terms of sacraments the order the first oh the bit that we should do at the start every day yeah you know whatever no do. no no 
No, no, just in terms of this one, we could we can save the whole list of sacraments right to the end, you know, as you usually do. But in terms of holy orders, which I presume holy orders and ordination is exact orders. Yeah. Ordination comes from the orders bit of holy orders. The first one, being ordained to the diaconate, what does that do to a man? This is where we should have got your dad on the show. He could have yeah, done. yeah. I should have should have asked him that beforehand. Then I would have known the know the answer. But it's <laughs> but you've done it too. Well, that's right. That's right. So in the Acts of the Apostles, it talked about how the apostles were too busy trying to do everything, and so they felt God saying, "You should be set apart for the ministry of the word." And so the deacons were set apart to serve. So it talked about how they selected seven men and they were ordained to basically serve the community. So it's, it's, it's particularly a ministry of service. But a deacon can also uh, read the gospel, preach, do baptisms, celebrate weddings, celebrate funerals. But they're particularly meant to be like assisting the bishop. Mm. So if you go through the history of the early church, you would always have, when, when the popes were being killed, in persecutions, they'd often be having their deacon right beside them, being killed with them. Mm. Yeah. So two um, two famous deacons come to mind: Saint Stephen, the uh, the first martyr, yep, and Saint Francis of Assisi. Yes. Because I understand that they couldn't stop him preaching, so eventually they made him a deacon to legitimise him. <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> he didn't want to be a priest. Yeah, he didn't feel he was worthy of it. Mm. Did that did that influence you? growing up well i think that was where the whole franciscan thing kind of appealed to me because i was like yep i get francis i understand he doesn't want to be a priest he just wants to love jesus and be simple Mm -hmm. so yeah i think that was definitely an influence so i think sorry yeah marty did you go through discernment for priesthood at any time i didn't not not really because i just met donna and she was awesome and like i didn't i wasn't looking to get married but i met this woman who i just wanted to marry and then so i just discerned that and then asked her and she said yes and and then asked me to be your mc and i said yes (laughs) so it was the start of a beautiful friendship How about you? Oh, yeah, you know, well and truly. Actually, I've been on a few MGL discernment retreats in the past. I remember being in the United States and actually Father Robert Fox, who we interviewed a a few episodes ago. um, It was actually Father Fox who I finally opened up to and said, over the last few months, I've really been discerning my vocation. And I think when I get back to Australia, I'd like to join the priesthood. It's funny. He actually made a comment to me at the time about the fact that I was walking around the world for unity. He said, the greatest example of unity we have in the world is marriage. And he said, I I think you might head that way. And that was actually really interesting for me to hear a priest not just jump onto a young person saying, I'm thinking about priesthood, but to actually stand there and say, oh, I, I, you know, in chatting to you, I thought you'd probably head towards marriage, but well, we'll see what happens. My take on it as I walked away from having met Father Fox was, oh, hang on a second. He sees both these in kind of equal view. He sees both as quite extraordinary steps. Mm. I'd say as a, as a single person, that discernment continues. Yeah. To be honest, I'm a bit more like Father Dave, though. I would prefer to actually, as, as much as I don't read anywhere near as much as both of you, to sit and read and pray and intercede, which that that's a huge change, I think, from my earlier days. Maybe that comes with age. I'd rather just be with God and chat and pray. Yeah, I used to want to just play football, but mm. I used to pray when I was playing footy though. I remember being <laughs> please, please don't let me get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> 
God, help me. No, no. I remember actually praying. Nothing to do with footy while on the footy field. It was possible to find peace even on North North Hobart Oval. So what sets the sac location of priesthood? Oh, Marty, you're still asking questions. Well, you so got a list I, in we, front we of you. No, we, yeah, because we're, we're going through the three levels oh, of ordination. Go through it methodically. So, go. So, so I just want to finish that off and say I do, in, in my experience, especially with my old man being a permanent deacon now, which, I mean, he was ordained quite, I don't know, late. He's 50 or something. And a couple of other deacons that I've ran into, which which is similar, they're, they're quite different backgrounds to your typical priests because they, they've all come from, you know, doing something else, some other line of work, which has taught them various things and then come into the, yeah, the holy orders of, of being a deacon, which meant that they were quite good at, you know, organising things. And if I read back in Acts and think what the deacons were appointed to do, permanent deacons seem generally quite good at doing the same sorts of things you know because i because they've done other things before before becoming yeah before getting ordained anyway mind you a number of uh, father dave's brothers in the mgls have had professions before joining the mgls mm. oh yeah no, i think these days that's that's pretty common in other countries you've still got the whole idea of the minor seminary where guys would finish their schooling in the seminary and then keep going straight on but in australia it's pretty standard that you'll have had a degree and worked for a few years before entering in. Mm. Is it true that with the Jesuits, you need a degree first? Yeah, I, I believe you need to have a separate degree, preferably like before you start your study. Yeah. Um, otherwise, they've got to do it during that study. I was going to say, you, you'd think that there oh, would be really? exceptions, but I think yeah. that's the, the standard. No. Without rules, there's chaos. So your first level, <laughs> you, you get ordained as a deacon and you can do some of those things we, we talked about, but you also you can bless things, yeah, metals, scapulars, people. Mm. So is there in a sense that that first level of ordination gives you these maybe I'm going to do inverted commas, holy hands to, to be able to impart blessings with an authority over and above normal baptised people? Well, yeah, it's, it's being given that authority of Christ. Because it's, it's, it's Jesus who does the work. Mm. You know, mm. So you're, you're being appointed by the church to minister in the name of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, the next level. You're already a deacon and you get ordained as a priest. Mm. What does that do? So there's a ceremony, etc. but what happens to you? What's the change? Well, once you're a priest, you're then obviously able to... Superpowers. So Eucharist, confession... And then there are certain things which can be delegated to you. So you can be delegated to confirm. Mm -hmm. um, so confirmation mm -hmm. is not sort of inherently one of the things that a priest can do, but a bishop can give you that ability yep. by, you know, delegation. So what does it mean to be ontologically changed? So ontology basically is about your being. Like, so it's like the very nature of your soul becomes changed. What that looks like, I have no idea because I don't know what my soul looks like. Mm. But something happens and it's permanent. So you can't ever stop being a priest. You can stop ministering as a priest or you can be removed from active ministry. But the basic idea is that once you're a priest, you're a priest for all of eternity. But that's, what do you say, ontological? That's the mm. change in your soul. Yeah. Um, Faculty is the other bit of it, which is permission from the bishop you work for. Yeah, yeah, to so, do so all those things. This is one of the things most people don't understand is that the priest only gets his permission to do anything by the bishop. And so when you get ordained, you get given what they call faculties, which is where the bishop says, 
if you're working in my diocese, I give you permission to celebrate mass, hear confessions, do this and this and this. Uh, at any point, the bishop can remove that mm-hmm. and you no longer have the permission to do any of that. Many years ago, we had a mission in Papua New Guinea and one of our guys had flown in and the first day he was there, they were asked to attend a, a wedding. And at this point, he didn't have any contact with the bishop. He hadn't received his faculties. They got to the wedding and the priest hadn't turned up. And so they turned to him and said, you're a priest, you do the wedding. And he was trying to say, I can't, Mm. I haven't got my faculties yet. And they're like, we don't understand what that is. You go and do the wedding. And um, yeah, it it became a little bit tense, I believe, because they just didn't quite understand what he was saying. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was going to say. You can't wander into another diocese and just do public ministry. I mean, you could you could say private mass for yourself yeah. in a hotel room or something, but you can't yeah. exercise public ministry without the permission of the bishop who is responsible for that diocese. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so for us as missionaries, because we travel around the country a lot, we, we seem to spend mm. our whole life contacting bishops <laughs> saying, hi, we're about to come. Can we get permission? <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. so awkward. I have to do the same thing, but of course I'm not responsible to the bishop. And so it all, the paperwork always ends up with big blanks and me having to attach extra notes going, the, the bishop can't legally sign off on me because the bishop doesn't give me faculties <laughs> as, a, as a lay minister. Yes. There's all the paperwork's geared for, for, for priests mm. going from diocese to diocese. Yeah. Yeah. So my last question, Your Honour, is um, the, last, <laughs> the last level of ordination, the ordination as a bishop, which only happens to some people, where you go from your honour to your grace. <laughs> Where you go from father to your grace, don't you? Um, well, so if, if if you're just a bishop, you're actually my lord. Oh. And then if you're an archbishop, you're your grace. Ah. If you're a cardinal, your eminence. Your eminence. And then as pope, your holiness. Wow. But there is only one step really in that. So you would get ordained as a bishop. And so at that point, you're able to confirm people. You're able to ordain people. But all the other steps, so becoming a cardinal is just an honorary position. Like there's not actually a reordination. Mm. Even becoming pope, the pope is not like a super bishop. He's just still a bishop. Mm. He's just the bishop of Rome. Mm. Mm. So I'm not sure whether when I'm allowed to ask a question because I know Marty's got his list there. And if I ask the wrong question at the wrong time, <laughs> he's going to pounce. Well, I'll just go one more and then you can ask a question. <laughs> so uh, anointing of the sick, that's, that's a normal priestly yeah. Sacrament. Yep. So back to the bishop, the ordination of a bishop. You get a couple, couple, couple of extra sacraments that you can uh, hmm. perform, but but you also a, a bishop is necessarily linked to a diocese. Is that right? Yes. Like the whole world's yeah. cut up into dioceses, so that everyone in the world has a bishop. Even even countries that don't, you know, he might not be in that country, but there is a bishop. Yeah. That, well, most bishops have a titular diocese where there may not even be a church. There might be only a few churches. But So, so this yeah. is one of the fascinating bits that, um, oh, yeah, obviously. So you, so you can only have one bishop per diocese. But obviously in a big diocese, you've got your archbishop and then your auxiliary or maybe a couple of auxiliaries. So the auxiliary bishops have what they call a titular. They are a titular bishop of a diocese which is basically not functioning anymore. Most of them are around the north of Africa or the Middle East, and there might only be like 200 Catholics in the whole diocese because it's mostly become Muslim. I know some bishops who will still visit their titular diocese once a year 
because they actually take real responsibility and say, well, that is my diocese. I'm going to go and visit those people and care for them, even though I'm working in Australia in the diocese there. That's really interesting. So the next time I meet an auxiliary bishop, I should ask him, where's your real diocese? (laughs) And do you visit? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. All right. Okay. Um, No further questions, Your Honour. For now. Objection. He's, le- he's leading the priest. Uh, why is it a sacrament? Why is holy orders a sacrament? Hmm. Well, I think, um, so So, firstly, like I was saying, we, the, the priesthood is bringing something of Christ into the world, which we simply could not do otherwise. And there is a particular authority of ministry which is given, which does not belong to us as human beings. Um, so I, I do not have authority to forgive sins. I do not have any power in me to perform the Eucharist. Mm. So yeah, there, there's there's a particular calling on that grace of Christ and that, and that authority of the church to be able to do those functions. Well, it's funny, right at the start, when we were talking about, about halfway through our first episode on sacraments, we actually finally defined a sacrament mm. and... So the, the symbolism... The symbolism during ordination is the laying on of hands, isn't it? Is that the form? Yeah. Or matter or something? No, the matter is yeah. the priest, the person. Well, oh, yeah, so... Um... I'm guessing. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the bishop lays hands and then there's also the anointing with the chrism on the, on the hands as well, the, the chrism oil. Right. So going back to your point, Sam, of you know, we, we, we just define a sacrament as being like a a physical symbol revealing an inner or like a hidden reality. So you're in the, in the, in the person of Christ. Yeah. Well, this is the unique thing I think about both marriage and orders is that normally when we would refer to a sacrament, we're talking about something one off, you know, so you celebrate the sacrament of penance or anointing. And so the sacrament has a clear start and finish point in these sacraments, Mm. you know, Marty lives his sacrament every day. So the sacrament is what he experienced on the day of his mar- of, of his wedding, but then it's a sacrament which is then revealed again and again as mm. he lives that out. So in the same way, like I, I, I receive the sacrament on the day of my ordination, but hopefully if I'm doing it properly, I am then living that sacrament and revealing that sacrament to the world. Mm. Mm. There's, there's a line which is mentioned in the prayer of ordination where the bishop says to the priest, may your life imitate the mystery you celebrate. And mm. I, I always remind myself of that as I'm walking up or walking down the aisle to begin mass, because the whole thing is like the, the mystery you celebrate is the death and resurrection. And mm. so it's this thing saying, may your life imitate the mystery you celebrate. Like, like you need to every day be dying and rising in a sense. Like, like you need to be actually revealing that to the world, the death and resurrection. Mm. Mm. There must be a certain temptation as well for priests to almost to give in to a desire to be esteemed or to be um, seated at the top of the table, probably the easiest way to put it, and to continually lower yourself to let Christ shine. Oh, yeah. It, it's it's a poison which has been in the church right since the beginning, you know, that, that, that whole thing of clericalism. And, and it goes both ways. Like, like there are times where the priest wants to be honoured and there are other times where the, the congregation lifts the priest up even if he doesn't want to be. And didn't, I think we, we have to constantly come back to that idea of the image of Christ the priest. Didn't didn't, that, um, didn't Benedict talk about that, uh, Pope Benedict, about um, people sort of cl- clericalism is really attractive for people because it makes it 
sort of lazy for everyone, whether people just elevate the priest and I don't really need to think or pray much and I'll just do what the priest says. And, and it's sort of can be easy for priests because so I'll just, you know, whatever I say that, you know, I don't really have to um, mean it or, or, or live it and, and, and everyone can sort of stay in this clericalism bubble, but it doesn't work. Yeah, we end up creating the priest as the mediator between us and Jesus, forgetting the fact that Jesus came down to us to be the mediator between us and the Father. You know, that, that every baptized Christian is meant to have direct access to Christ and, and, and be Christ. Sadly, our theology has been so simplistic that as a way of trying to defend the Eucharist and defend the, the necessity of the Mass, we've resorted to clericalism because we can't understand how we can keep it important without that. Mm. You know, like as soon as we start saying lay people are important and lay people can pray, and talk directly to Jesus, they assume that we're instantly going to make the same mistake as the early Protestant reformers and kick the priests out. Whereas actually we, we, we need a bigger understanding of the mass that we, we become it's, the body of Christ all, all together. Like, like we need both priest and people. Yeah. But I think that whole emphasis of the, the people and a, a bit, I think, coming out of Vatican II and stuff, that the, the laity needs to be you know more involved I think a lot of that isn't actually about the liturgy, and and there is some there's some opportunities in the liturgy for like, but that's not that's not the entirety of what the Vatican Council was talking about. We need we need lay lay people reading. It's about we need lay people understanding their mission to mm. be priest, prophet, and king, and evangelizing people and living out their their vocations, living out the. Evangelizing our spouse, yeah. evangelizing our Precisely. children. Precisely, like at, at work, yeah, living your faith, not not yeah. not yeah, adopting clericalism. I, I remember hearing uh, Bishop uh, Archbishop Mark Coleridge. Someone was asking him, you know, the classic question: Why can't women be priests? Why can't married people be be priests? And he just said, the question is fundamentally wrapped up in clericalism. It, it assumes this clericalistic world where the priest is the only one who can do stuff. You can't have a mission unless you're a priest. Yeah. That's the assumption. Yeah. And, and he was trying to say, look, you've missed the point that mm. you're all priests by virtue of your baptism. Actually go out and start living your baptism first. Like yeah. get out there and start preaching. Like, like you don't need to be a priest to preach. In fact, you're probably going to be much more effective doing a podcast or on YouTube because most people in church are asleep. You know, and, you so, so, and you don't need faculty. <laughs> you know, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> but like, like, yeah, actually get out there and do stuff as in, in your lay vocation. Mm. I always, when, when I was teaching guys in the novitiate, I'd always try to say to them, like, think of the priests as being like the mechanic at the, at the, at the local service station. His job is to fix the cars and get them back out on the road because the cars are meant to be driving. But the cars are not meant to be in the service station 24 hours a day. Mm. And this and it's the image drivers mess who with drive heads. them. Yeah. Like, like, it's an image which would mess with their heads because a lot of these guys were coming from countries which was very strongly clericalist. But the image I was trying to get to them was saying, like, the priesthood is essential but for the sake of helping lay people do their job. Mm. Like our job is to bring the healing of Christ, bring them to a place of real conversion, and then say, get out there in the world and do your job. Mm. To create parishes that are full of missionary disciples that then actually go and evangelize other people and bring them into the church. 
Mm, if you yeah. any parish that's relying on the priest only to do all the ministry, all the evangelization to anyone is so limited in what contact you could have just from a, you know, statistical perspective. Well, my my experience over the years has been one of any time I've actually come up with an idea. It's very easy to say the church should be doing this, the church should be doing that, and then write a letter to the priest or the bishop saying what, recommending what we think they should do. Any time I've ever gone to a priest or a bishop with an idea and said, can I do this? I can't remember a single time where they've said no. They've said, yes, please. What do you need? Yeah. I'll, I'll write you letters. I'll, I'll put you in contact with this person. Mm. And I, I think perhaps the three of us in our ex- experience around the disciples, disciples of Jesus covenant community, were probably a little bit spoiled with being around people who are just actively, mm. constantly wanting to do something. But then when you step outside that, at times, and there are other communities, uh, faith communities, where everyone is mm. actively living out their ministry. But it's very easy to fall back into, well, my part is to go to mass, and then mm. I have filled my obligation, and all this other stuff should be done by the priest, the bishop, etc., the yeah. deacons. And th- there's a lot of people who have been really badly treated by priests. You know, people who have come with that, all that energy and vision, and they've just been shut down. And, and I think that is absolutely tragic because the, the, the priest is meant to be a leader, but they don't teach leadership in the seminary. Mm. And I think this is a fundamental problem. Yeah. Many, many years ago, I was a manager of, for Youth Mission Team Australia, and we had to do, what's that INFJ stuff? Myers-Briggs? Oh, the um, Myers-Briggs thing. Yep. Yeah, Myers-Briggs personality thing. And the, oh, the team personality. members... Yeah. <laughs> Ding dong. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the team members had had just done it. I was out of the office and they'd done it just while getting to know each other. And I got back and they wanted me to do it. And I reluctantly did it. Turns out I'm an INFJ. I don't know what that means. But Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. I, I don't know what it I was either. an introvert. Probably why I didn't want to do it in the first place. But oh, Is that what I stand um, for? One of the team members asked me a question, having heard that I am INFJ, which meant something to her, not to me. And she said to me, Oh, I'm a bit scared that you're my manager. I said, why? You should be. Let me, and she said to me, let me put it this way. If I came to you with an idea for something to do with the youth group, would you do it or not? And I said, (laughs) depends if it's any good. (laughs) Exactly. That's what I said. But her response, now this is Isabel, and I'll give credit to Belle for this because it, it genuinely changed my view of leadership. Belle said to me, see, I'd do it. And I said, but what if it's a bad idea? And she said, no, but that's your job as a manager. If someone comes to you with the idea, that in and of itself is probably more important than the idea. So if they've got the willingness to do something, your job should be to help them make it a good idea if you can see it's a bad one. Now, that's not true in all circumstances, but I tell you what, I reckon for 95% of the time, it's absolutely true. And Bell taught me one of the best lessons I could have learned as a manager. Yeah, I agree with that. Like from, from experience outside the church, just managing normal work stuff. If someone working for me comes to me and with, a, with an idea and it's not perfect and it's not quite the way I'd do it, but it's going to work, absolutely, go and do it. What do you need from me? Because you get all that enthusiasm, you get 
buy-in, you get commitment, and you get some results out of it. The other option is I can say, no, 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 you're wrong. Do it my way, and you lose all that. You, you lose all those benefits, unless the idea is flawed. Or it speaks very much about, I think, the the mission of Jesus. You know, like we've often thought that the job of a priest is to keep the sheep happy, whereas I think what we're actually being called to is turn the sheep into shepherds. Yep. And that I think is the real challenge of the new evangelization, you know, like it's not just about preaching the gospel and doing more amazing stuff. It's actually about equipping people to go out and be missionary disciples. To me, that's 100% leadership, as you were talking a minute ago. I mean, if I look at, if we're building a $3 billion mine and I'm in charge of it, there is no way I'm going to know everything that's going on. Mm. So how do you how do you manage that? You get other people, you get other people around you, you give them different responsibilities, this organization turns into a triangle and because if you're relying on me to do everything we can only we can only build something big you know 10 bucks worth because because that's all i can get my head around other day from your own perspective and from your brother priests how can the laity better help those in priesthood great question really good question i obviously i can't speak universally for every priest but um noted <laughs> <laughs> One of the Please best continue. things I've seen, the Men Alive group. So you, you guys heard of Men Alive. Um, yep. Yep. One of the key things they do is they they challenge the man to basically support their priest, you know, take him out for a coffee, chat to him as a human being. Mm. And as simple as that is, I think that's one of the most revolutionary things for a priest. Because of that whole centuries-old culture we've had of clericalism, the priests often are separated in this little bubble even if they want to be relating with the lay people the lay people aren't letting them mm. because they're like oh father you're a great father whatever father actually just take him out as a human being and just chat to them about the football that's going to achieve an enormous amount but from there if you've got a priest who doesn't know how to preach or a priest who's an absolute train wreck in terms of leadership as a friend just start to talk with them about that a lot of people have got so much pent-up resentment and anger against the church and against priests that they just start throwing stuff at them. Whereas if you realise that actually this is a guy who's probably drowning in responsibility and way out of his depth, he would just really appreciate someone to get alongside and suggest a couple of good leadership books, you know, or some good books on evangelization, or just to get him excited again about the gospel, you know, just to share what your journey's been. Mm. That's going to achieve it a huge amount. Do you, do you happen to know Father Ben Johnson? No. Capuchin. He's a Capuchin friar. Oh, he's not the uh, 88 Olympics. No, no I don't think he's run right. 100 Different meters. one. Different one. Right. Different okay. one. Yeah. Uh, so I lived in a, a Capuchin household in Sydney with, uh, with three other guys. And Father Ben was in charge of our house. So he was in charge of pastoral care and he'd come over. Honestly, after the first two weeks, Father Ben would just pop round, lay on our brown couch and disappear into it because his, his robe was the identical colour to our couch. <laughs> and he just lay there and just chat. This ended up becoming, he was meant to be our pastoral carer, but I felt like we became his pastoral carer <laughs> as a household. We actually really enjoyed each other's company, the four of us living in the house and Father Ben being in the house every now and then. It was genuinely relaxing it was downtime mm. and i think for him he felt human again mm. Mm. for anyone who is considering a vocation to the priesthood father dave have you got any hot tips fall in love with jesus best one that'd be the number one mm. and it, 
as, as strange as it sounds, I, I've, I've met a lot of guys who have gone through this, you know, enter the seminary because they're attracted to the priesthood, but they haven't really actually prayed. They don't really have a real relationship with Jesus. It sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. It is. Yeah. Well, the same thing happens with relationships, doesn't it? You start dating someone. Mm. You because really... you want to get married. You're, you're in love yeah. with the idea of marriage <laughs> and you're hoping this might be the right person. Yeah. So on that note, I would say being married to like the right person is awesome, but I imagine being married to the wrong person would be bloody awful. Yeah. No matter how, how good your wedding day is, mm. it's a whole long journey after that. So I mean, I guess the same. Having gone applies. through a divorce annulment, I feel like right now I've just got to sit here and shut up. I just can't. Oh, you have your own conversation right great now. Great example. <laughs> Sorry. So, Father Dave, little... if you weren't on that, on that, if you weren't an MGL, would it definitely have been Franciscan or Carthusian? Because I could I could see you as a Carthusian. Oh, look, I, 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 was, I was on my way to the Franciscans, but then got into Veen and turned me elsewhere. These days... Like I, I often find myself thinking if some great disaster happened and I had to go spend the rest of my life as a hermit, I, I'd be quite happy. <laughs> I, I have nearly finished the hermitage on your property. I've still got to finish yes. the roof there. <laughs> yeah. um, it's only 200 metres away from me and it's, it's no better than when you left it. It's probably covered in more bracken fern and stuff growing inside of it. Oh, I'll be moss. There'll be a, fascinating. Be a... we, we, we obviously like spending time with you even more than you like spending time with us. <laughs> he comes He comes to visit me and goes and builds a hermitage up in the wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> and he still didn't get the hint. <laughs> <laughs> sure, make yourself at home. No, literally. Just... Yeah. But, yeah, so for anyone else discerning, I think find some really good, inspiring examples of priesthood. Look widely at the many expressions of priesthood. Actually, can I pick up on that? That, that was a really important thing for me, even though I haven't ever joined the seminary to become a priest. This did change my view of priesthood was actually meeting priests I aspired to be like, mm. as opposed to as a child, most of the priests I knew were in their fifties and sixties, possibly seventies and of a different generation and I didn't see much in their day-to-day -day ministry that I aspired to want to do. But then as, as I got older, started meeting priests who I could relate to and who I could ask really in-depth questions of. And I'm so grateful that I've got a, a couple of really good Capuchin and Dominican friends, along with the MGL friends, who I've just been able to spend really quality time with and get to see them being in love with Jesus and them in love with the church. And then that was influenced my view of the priesthood. Mm. So yeah, I think, I think you need to ask really interesting questions of priests because one of the difficult things is that most people only see a priest on Sundays celebrating mass. The vast majority of what a priest does, you never get to see because it's always one-on-one -on -one and it's highly confidential. Mm. But if you actually start to ask priests questions about you know, the mo most interesting experiences they've had or what keeps them going in their ministry, I think then you're going to get an insight into a whole different world that you wouldn't see otherwise. Mm. I asked our parish priest once, how do you pray? As a really simple question as a probably 19-year-old, but that one answer was 
transformative. Oh, I won't go into it, but it was a simple question, but it wasn't something that he was normally asked. Mm-hmm. So going, going. I've got one more, got one more comment talking about, um, you mentioned a minute ago about the various sort of forms of expression of the priesthood. So some of the Eastern Catholic and, East, and Eastern Orthodox priests are married. Mm. In those traditions, they get ready for ordination and then go and decide whether they want to get married. And if they do, then they get married, then they come back and get ordained. Their bishops aren't drawn from married priests. Their bishops are drawn from the monasteries mm. of unmarried priests. I, I understand that, that um, at the point of ordination in the diaconate, that implies you can't get married after that. You could, you could have been married before that. And you could be a widow, or, or in some of those traditions, you, you could just be married and, and be ordained. But you can't be you can't be married after receiving holy orders. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So often, men in, in like, like you say, Eastern Catholics or in the Orthodox churches, they'll complete their seminary study and then basically put it on hold for a few years, go back home to their village or wherever they are, try and find a wife who is quite happy to be part of that ministry with him. Mm. And then come mm. back and get ordained. Mm. Yeah, I um, I don't know how they do it to be honest. As a, as a father, with a family, that just seems impossible. But I mean, they, they manage somehow. Yeah, and I, I'd, I'd be fascinated to kind of look at how their parish structures operate because I'd imagine that they are running on quite a different style than how we do in the Catholic or in the you know the Roman the, the, the yeah. Roman rite. Yeah. Like we said, where. It, in our context, it's so focused on the priest and therefore the priest is so busy. I'd imagine in their context, it's quite different because mm. the priest says, I just can't do that. Mm. You know, everyone else has to do it. <laughs> mm. the, uh, the, the small village model yeah, where they're all mm. working together. Yeah, that's right. Now, the, the patron saint of priests, St. John Vianney, mm. uh, are you happy to... Actually, I'll be honest, I don't know a great deal about him other than he is the patron saint of priests. Could we conclude with a, a little bit of his story? He was a so, machine. Really good model of priest. And, and I think sadly, he's like, like a lot of saints, he's commemorated in name only, really, as, as opposed to mm. actually trying to imitate his life or his mission. Because the whole thing was, well, so he, he should not have been ordained. He was particularly uneducated. It's kind of one of those miracles of God that he got through. He was put in a small little village out of the way where he couldn't do much damage. In France. But his whole mission was intercession and serious fasting and self-denial and he succeeded in basically converting the whole village and region around him wouldn't people after you know at the sort of end of that because he's there for a long time people mm. had come from all over europe to go to confession with him which yeah. i just think is fascinating yeah yeah he was doing like 16 hours a day in the confessional wow but i i always like this has been my first year in this parish up here in darwin and and john viani's been a a constant reminder that at the end of the day, programs and events aren't really going to be the thing that converts the place. It's got to be just serious prayer. You know, like if, if I actually really take seriously my mission to convert the whole of this parish, I've got a big job and that's a serious amount of prayer because there's 24,000 people in my parish, 6,000 of them are Catholics, only 600 go to church. That's a whole lot of prayer that I need to be doing to actually break through that spiritual battle. We'll join you. So I, had a quote, I had a quote from St. John Vianney from the 4th of August as his, um, his feast day, and I looked him up, and this quote struck me, which was really challenging, where he said, We must always choose the most perfect, 
Two good works present themselves to be done, one in favour of a person we love, the other in favour of a person who has done us some harm. Well, we must give preference to the latter. And I read that and I thought, really? <laughs> I, I don't want to. And St. John Vianney replied, mm-hmm. Yes, you do. Yep. So, Lord, we pray for all priests and bishops and deacons around the whole world. Make us holy. Make them all holy, Lord. Draw us deeper into the mystery of your death and resurrection. We pray that many young men would have the courage to step up into this beautiful vocation and that you would just draw your whole church to live their vocation, to not be relying on the priests to do everything, but to really step up and live their calling of their baptism. Lord, we pray your blessing upon us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. St. John Vianney, pray for, pray for us. us. Our Lady Queen of Angels, pray for us. Pray for us. <laughs>